0: Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today on our show, we've got an amazing guest, as always. He is one of the world's leading experts on trust and has been described as a trust savant. Welcome to the show, Dr. Daryl Stickle. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dr. Dave. How are you? Fantastic. Now, you've got a PhD from Duke, and you have been in this executive world for, oh, roughly about 20 years now, correct?
1: Yeah, that's about right. Yeah.
0: Wow. How, how did you get started on this topic of trust, and uh, and how have you built this, this career up to the level that you're at now?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think part of it stems back from growing up in a small town. Um, I was born and raised in Fort St. John, which is this small town in Northern British Columbia. Right. Yes. I've actually been there. (laughs) Yeah. So that was you. (laughs) Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it was about 12,000, 13,000 people when I was growing up there. Um, fairly isolated. There was this sense of community. Um, I'm not saying everybody was nice to each other, but we all had to pull together. And there was this sense that if you could help someone, you should. Yes, And so that was a big part of my upbringing and it developed this sense of empathy. Um, and then, you know, I had a, I had a rocky road when I was growing up. Um, I had had a few concussions, uh, pretty severe one. When I was 17, I was playing junior hockey and I got attacked by a fan with a club. What? Um,
0: Hold on. Hold on. What happened here? like yeah I know Fort St. John is kind of like a forestry town it's it's rough is it is it not but it is in a hockey game with a club what <laughs> Yeah
1: I was actually playing in Fort Nelson at the time I was I was uh, playing for the for the junior Elks um, and we were we were a juvenile team playing in a junior B league and we were winning. Uh, it was a, we were playing in a tournament, we were beating the hometown team oh no! and yeah. And so we had fewer players than they did and we were younger than they were. And so they decided they would try to fight us out of the game. Um, and so a lot of fights broke out during the game and, uh, I was standing too close to the boards. There was a, an opening in the glass where the gate was and this guy grabbed me and had a club and shattered my helmet knocked me unconscious. Um, and then when my teammates pulled me out of the crowd, uh, one of the other players grabbed me and signed my head into the ice several times and kicked me with his skates on. And, um, Jeez. it was pretty brutal. No kidding. Like, and
0: hockey fight. This is a full out assault.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People were throwing beer bottles at me as they were carrying me off the ice. And, um, It was, it was a pretty appalling scene. Um, and I, I'm legally blind now, but I I knew at that time that I was losing my sight. Um, and I, and I had thought that my path forward in life was to train my brain to be able to think for a living. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm in high school. I've gone from being on the honor roll to having the attention span of a fruit fly. Um. And so I'm failing all my classes and I can't think at all. And I'm sleeping all the time and it's the mid eighties. And so they they don't know much about it at that time. What other symptoms were you having? The profound fatigue, the inability to concentrate. um, I couldn't remember things from before the, the assault. Um, You know, I was taking German and I was partway through the course and then I come back and I can't remember anything. Oh, wow. Um. And so, uh, you know, the, the compounded was this not knowing what was wrong with me, um, because they were sort of thinking, well, you know, he got his bell rung and he should be fine. Um, but I, <laughs> I wasn't ever right. <laughs> I. It took me about two years to recover, and and then they started testing me for things like mono. And they said, you know, well, you've got this profound fatigue that doesn't seem to want to go away. Maybe you've got chronic Epstein-Barr and maybe you've got, uh, maybe you've got AIDS, maybe you've got leukemia. We're going to test you for all these things. And so there's all of a sudden this real struggle, um, not knowing, you know, I'm 17 years old and, and I, maybe my life is over. Um, and and I can't think, which was one of the things that had always sort of, you know, I'd been able, I'd been smart. I'd been, right. you know, done well in school and all those kinds of things. And that was my path, my plan forward. And what this taught me was what it was like to be more vulnerable than you want to be mm. and what it was like to have no hope and to feel helpless. Um, and so I developed this really strong level of empathy and, and I'd always been somewhat protective, but, but it started to become more, I I didn't, I don't like bullies. And I had this desire to help people and to not have them go through the struggle that I'd gone through. And so I, you know, I, I moved to Victoria, um, started going to university. And it was a struggle to start with. You know, I slowly recovered, but I, I kept having concussions. You know, because I was still playing hockey. Um, couldn't give it I, up. Yeah. I I couldn't, and I was. You know, I'm young and stupid, right? I feel immortal, and yes. um, and I don't know the linkage, and so I keep having these concussions. I'm playing college hockey, you know, um, and I'm I'm performing well on the ice. Mm-hmm. But you know, keep getting knocked out. Um
0: and probably and, easier and easier each time, right? That's- yeah.
1: Well, your your ability to focus and, and your awareness of of danger and those kinds of things is is shrunk as well. And so you find yourself in difficult, awkward spots. Um and so I would be, you know, sitting on the bus in Victoria and someone would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And so there was all of a sudden something about me that made people want to talk to me and open up to me. I was safe. Um, there was something about me that, that communicated to people. It's okay. He's not going to judge you. Um, and, and he'll listen and. So I started down a path towards becoming a clinical psychologist. Okay. And, you know, I I was working with families in crisis and troubled teens and street kids and uh, working on crisis lines and those kinds of things to hone those skills and to try to understand what it was about me that was causing, because I'd be standing next to a friend of mine and have a completely different experience with a stranger. Hmm. You know, they would would be – smiling and warm and friendly and open to me and then closed and reserved and curt with the person standing right next to me within seconds and so there was this bizarre experience i was having where it was you know something was going on and i wanted to understand that and so uh i spent a lot of time kind of developing my skills and and further honing those skills and then I came to realize that a lot of the people I was working with, the families who were struggling and those kinds of things, were just doing the best they could. Right. You know? And and it had taken them years to become as as stuck and dysfunctional as they were. If they ever recovered, it was gonna take years. And you know, I would get dropped into a family by social services. And fairly quickly, I could diagnose the problem and see, you know, if they just changed a couple of small behaviors, it would lead to a dramatic improvement in their lives. So and they just were, couldn't get there. What were some of these
0: uh, little behaviors? And and why do you think those behaviors uh, were so difficult to change?
1: Well, a lot of times I'd be dropped into a family that had young kids. Um, and, and the pattern that I would see is that there was just... One of my colleagues once described children as as being like the night watchman. They try every door, hoping to God that it's locked. (laughs) And, you know, so what they craved was consistency. And, you know, I would get dropped into a family and I would say, you know, okay, your kid's going to hate me for the first two weeks, then they're going to love me. Mm -hmm. And because I would come in and I would start to set boundaries. Yes. And I, I would say, we're gonna get along great as long as you stay within these boundaries. And and I I would say if if you break the rule, here's the consequence. And then I just made sure that every time they broke the rule, the consequence got applied. So I was very careful in thinking about what are the consequences I can apply, what are the rules that are manageable for this kid. And True enough, you know, first two weeks they would rail against me. I hate Daryl, never let him back in the house, all this kind of stuff. And then after two weeks, they'd be like, when's Daryl coming back? Yes. Because it was safe with me. Absolutely. They knew what the rules were. And, and so I had reduced their uncertainty. And a lot of times in these families, the kids were actually running amok and the parents were struggling. They couldn't be consistent. They couldn't, you know show the kid compassion and care and love, but at the same time set boundaries. And I never raised my voice. I would just say the, these are what the rules are. And if you break the rules, then this is what the consequence is going to be. And they would try it. Right. Mm They would, Oh, "Oh, I don't believe (laughs) you. They'd break the rule and then there'd be a consequence, you know, and, and I did that with my own kids. Um, You know, my own sons, they would have struggles when they were young. And I'd sit down with them and I'd say, you know, you're having a tantrum right now. And I need to tell you that I want you to be successful in life. And what you're doing isn't going to work. You need to find another way. Mm -hmm. And the harder you tantrum, the more convinced I become to not give you what you're asking for. (laughs) And so they learned... You know, and I, I knew I was doing well when the older one was sitting in the back seat. I think he was six and the younger one was three. The younger one starts to have a tantrum and the older one says to him, that never works with dad.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're going to have to find another another approach. I'm and
0: this, uh, yeah, this is taking me back to when I, I was a teacher and I taught behavioral students. Mm hmm. I was kind of a rookie teacher when I when I first got in, got into that that line of work, and one of the counselors walks up and she's like, "There's only two things these kids need: love and boundaries." Yeah, and I just that just stuck with me ever since. And yeah,
1: hearing it from you just just resonates. <laughs> well, more, you know, my my older son when he was, I think he was three, he went up into this play area at McDonald's when they had those, you know, big play areas and he's running around in there and having a great old time. And then I called him to come down because it was time for us to go and he didn't come down and he Uh wouldn't come down. And I had to crawl up inside that thing (laughs) and I'm six, 6'3, 220. Like this thing was not designed for me to be crawling around inside. (laughs) And so I finally get to him and he's got this look on his face like, oh my God, I'm in trouble now. And I just said to him, I said, I need you to remember this moment because we're not coming back here for a really long time. And that was all I said. You know, and we went down the slide. Three months later, we're driving past that same McDonald's. And he goes, hey, there's that McDonald's. We haven't been there for a really long time. (laughs) I said, that's right. I said, do you remember why? He said, yeah, I wouldn't come down out of the play area. And I said, that's right. And so from then on, every time we went to a place that had a play area, he would come to me and he would say, I'm going to the play area, but if you call me, I'll come right away. And he just learned, right? That if dad makes a commitment, he means it. And it's one of the ways we build trust, right? We reduce uncertainty. We have integrity. So if we make a commitment or if we make a promise, we follow through on it, which means we have to be careful about the promises we make. And we have to take care that, you know, we, we only promise things that we can follow through on. So effort and ability. Um, we, we can't always promise around outcomes. So
0: do you think this is one of the leading reasons why in business maybe things are falling apart is people are just overpromising?
1: There's some challenges that we're facing in business right now, and trust levels are at the lowest we've ever seen. Are you
0: ready to take your brain health to a brand new, higher level than ever before? Then please check out thehardybrain.ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs.
1: There's some challenges that we're facing in business right now. And trust levels are at the lowest we've ever seen for a few reasons. Um, You know, I believe trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And it's, you know, uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And if, if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if we're beneath it, then we do. And... You know, that means that if we've got a an early relationship, we have a really high level of uncertainty, which means we can only tolerate small ranges of vulnerability. And as that relationship gets deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. Well, if we think about what's going on in the world right now and in business in general, vulnerability hasn't gone down. Right. But the uncertainties on steroids, it just keeps bouncing all over the place. You know, we think about technological change. We think about changes in values and norms. We think about pandemics. We think about climate change. All of these things are promoting pretty pronounced levels of uncertainty. And, you know, if we if we think about some of the levers that we can pull to build trust, three of those reside within us. You know, I think there are 10 levers. Three of them are, are internal to us. And those are benevolence, integrity, and ability. Benevolence is, do you have my best interest at heart? And will you act that way? Integrity is do I follow through on my promises? And do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability is do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? Well, as fast as things are moving, you know, what makes an excellent leader is actually a moving target. And so pulling the ability lever is harder than it used to be because it's not always the same. And leaders are struggling with the concept of stepping away from the things that got them to where they are and into the new roles and responsibilities that are required of them because it creates uncertainty for them and that they're worried about failing. And as a parent or as a leader, we have to accept that we're going to make mistakes and, and to own that. But a lot of leaders struggle with that. The integrity piece is also, it's harder now than it used to be because it's harder for me to make a long-term commitment given that the rules are changing and evolving and, and moving at such a rapid pace. And things that were okay 10 years ago aren't now. And so how do I communicate an alignment between my values and my actions when my values may be forced to change? Right. And Benevolence is is a struggle for a lot of organizations, especially with virtual teams. Um, You know, we we don't spend as much time together. And when we get into these Zoom meetings, a lot of times we're very product-focused, focused focused on productivity, focused on action items, focused on getting work done. Mm -hmm. And less focused on connecting with each other as human beings, uh, care and concern about each other. And so the level of benevolence has, it's not that we're feeling less benevolent, we're just communicating it less effectively. Right.
0: Well, too, there's kind of the aspect of um, that with trust, a lot of it is doing things together. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, team sports, it's all about performing and doing. Yeah. Maybe less so on the communication side, although that's a huge factor, of course. But in all these Zoom calls and everything else, there isn't that doing aspect. Um, so you're what? not really? going on a journey with somebody, a physical, actual task. Um, how do you think that could be woven in or uh, or uh, kind of the hybrid model with this then?
1: Yeah, so it's a challenge I think that we're facing, and I've I've talked to a couple of folks recently about creating these virtual communities, because part of the struggle is we don't have the same constraints we used to have. You know, our relationships are a mile wide and an inch deep, and and so we don't connect as often. We're not as interdependent as we once were. Uh, we don't have the sort of the happenstance or the, the opportunity to connect with each other when it's not scripted.
0: Right. All the things things that you were used to when, when growing up in in Fort St. John. there,
1: Yeah. And, you know, there were jerks in Fort St. John and, but they didn't hide it. (laughs) And you knew that person's (laughs) a jerk and they're going to be a jerk, but, but there's an opportunity, they still get an opportunity to try again because you're, physically co-located, right? You're in the same area and you're going to run into them over and over again. And you can figure out a way to connect with each other. And maybe they they evolve and change, or maybe you come to appreciate some of the traits that they have. And maybe they're a jerk because they're insecure and they don't feel accepted. Well, they don't get that second chance in a lot of virtual communities. You know, they're exiled. And, oh, uh, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes we're poorer for it. Um, and I'm not, you know, here on defense of jerks. I'm just saying that communities now aren't as resilient as they used to be because it's so easy for us to leave. Yes. And so they don't build up the same depth of caring and concern over time. We don't know each other as well. And so there's just much higher levels of uncertainty, and that leads us to problems when we're talking about trying to build trust, right? And we we now, need to be more intentional. Kind of
0: dynamic though, um, with these kind of smaller communities, and going back to kind of the experience you had with hockey there, and that, that right is there seems to be kind of more that tribalism where basically one group will kind of fight against the other group though. But even the the jerk on your team is he's your jerk.
1: Right. <laughs> and mentality.
0: Yeah. How do we make it peaceful kind of more all around then? Or do we always need these kind of little battles with other groups to, to satisfy whatever human need or desire or
1: behavior that's there? I I don't think we need it. I think it, it it's something that manifests, and we're seeing you know this vilification of the other. Um, and the the problem that we face as human beings is that we're we struggle with something that has a longer term reward structure to it. Mm. You know, we are influenced by rewards and punishment in the environment. It impacts our behavior, but if something is closely tied. It has a stronger impact on us than something that's happens, you know, six months from now or a year from now. And so do you have an
0: example of that um, and how that unfolds then? Um, Sure.
1: Smoking, drinking, overeating. Those are all things that have an immediate gratification, but long-term consequences. Right. And we see the same thing playing itself out with vilification. So if I, If I vilify somebody else, it rallies support from the people who are on my side Mm -hmm. and gives us a common cause. And we see this playing itself out in politics a lot. Um, Or with different groups that identify themselves. You know, there's got to be somebody to fight. Otherwise, people aren't committed enough. They won't invest or engage. And we see this in social media where people have outrageous opinions because it leads to success for them mm-hmm. and, yes. and they get more viewers and more support and people are willing to commit to them. Um, partly we need to be more intentional and this is, this is part of what, you know, it's why I wrote my book. It's, it's why I focus on skill building to build trust. Now we need to be aware of what trust is and how it works and we need to be more conscious of it than we've been in the past. Because the reactive approach that we're taking right now is, is leading to not very good places. Um, you know, trusting government is at such low levels. I think there are there are sexually transmitted diseases that have higher approval ratings than some of our government officials. Um, <laughs> That's so
0: nicely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, at least you can do something about it most of the time. Um, so, so
0: Let's dive into this hornet's nest of politics then. That's sure. Right now, and uh, and this, do you think it's going to continue to build up till it explodes, or is there some other way around the mess that uh, kind of globally a lot of countries are at?
1: That's a really good question, and and part of the challenge is is that we have created structures that lead to the people we don't want running the country, running the country. Um, yeah, you know, if I were to ask you or someone else who is rational, hey, would you like to be prime minister? Or would you like to be a member of parliament?
0: No. Or
1: would you like, <laughs> yeah. Who wants to put their family through that, right? Who wants that kind of scrutiny? Well, profound narcissists are really fond of power and authority and, and they don't care who they throw under the bus to get it. You right. know, it's all about them. And so that's the kind of people we tend to attract. And I'm not saying they're all like that, but we have more of those than we should. And so there's these structures in place that are leading to the kinds of leaders that that we're getting. And, you know, we haven't reached a good agreement about what good looks like for a public servant, for a a political leader. Um, We have small subsections of the population electing people because it sounds good for them but it's not good for the collective. And, you know, we can look at the last several leaders in Canada or the U S and you'll find some people who say, Oh, they were a great leader. And some people who say they were the worst leader ever. Yes. And we haven't clearly defined what good looks like. And that's a problem.
0: Well, we have, we good is whatever somebody believes in. And that's, (laughs) The definition of good is different from one person to the other, but individually, yeah. we all have this this notion of oh yeah that person is good or that one's horrible.
1: <laughs> but we haven't created a shared notion, you know, right. and and so there are some things that we could think about. Is you know, somebody who would who would be a good leader would there are probably things we could agree on even right across mm-hmm. boundaries. Someone who puts the good of the collective ahead of their own. Um, someone who has integrity and is, is going to follow through on their promises and commitments. And, you know, most of these folks want similar outcomes. They just have different paths of getting there. Right. Well, how about a little more transparency and how about, how about we have an agreement that, you know, going after my family or your family is off off limits and we actually treat each other with respect and dignity, you know?
0: So, so you've dove right there into the the logical side the the ethical side uh so ethos uh, <laughs> uh pathos um we we haven't hit on the, the the pathos side though so right that charismatic thing that makes a leader though and that seems to be how people emotionally respond and make a decision though so logically and ethically yeah out of that makes perfect perfect sense right uh, is that
1: really why we follow leaders though uh leaders can have different traits you know and and we can find leaders with with different skills and abilities some of them rely more on charisma to to create a shared passion moving forward they create this notion of a collective that, that we're pulling together um we haven't seen a leader who's able to, to, and I'm thinking about political leaders at the most senior levels right now. Right. We haven't seen a leader who's able to bring everyone together yet. And and part of that is because there's, hasn't always been a collective villain for them to rally us against. I guess, you know, Putin's trying, he's doing his best. <laughs> um, you know, to, to show the world, hey, here's what evil looks like. Um, But, you know, a lot of times we follow someone, yes, because of charisma, and that's the emotional component. Um, Sometimes we'll follow people because they just make the most sense. You know, they're competent and capable. And introverts can be amazing leaders if they surround themselves with the right people. And it's, you know, leadership has, I think, Leadership is evolving away from one person being everything, and into we need a, a group of people who have a diverse set of skills that they can bring to the party. And you know, you hit on something really uh, pertinent because you know I wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments, um, and one of the insights that I gained. When working on my PhD, was that most of the research on trust really just focuses on that cognitive rational piece? Uh, yes, yeah. And you know, the amount that we like or dislike somebody else has a really profound impact on how much we trust them. And you know, if we like someone, we look for reasons to trust them. We've got this positive story about them, and it makes us more likely to trust them. Makes us see the outcomes more positively. And it creates this virtuous cycle. And, you know, th- those, those impacts become more extreme, the more pronounced our emotions become, the, you know, love and hate are blind. Mm-hmm. And if we hate someone, you know, then coming to us with rational reasons for why we should trust them doesn't work. We need to reset those emotional states first. And that's one of the challenges we're seeing in the U.S. right now between the right and the not so right. Um, because, you know, America is is more right-leaning than, than Canada is. Um, and they're actually much closer together, the Democrats and the Republicans, than, than they believe, though they're striving to become more extreme. Um, you know, there, there's such a huge middle ground for them. But they've got this emotional anchor that's weighing them down. And, you know, until we can sort of reset that a bit, then these logical arguments just aren't going to make sense.
0: Right. So how does somebody basically trust somebody that they don't like?
1: Well, I think the first step is awareness. Um, you know, we, we have a fairly limited, amount of awareness when it comes to the topic of trust um, who we trust how much we trust them um, we can trust people we don't like when we come to understand what their motives are what their incentives are what the story is for success for them and then we can have an understanding of what places we can trust them you know a lot of times people will ask me you know i talk about the topic of trust and and I'll ask people, who do you trust? And they give me these close, tight, personal relationships. Mm -hmm. And then I'll flip it and I'll say, who trusts you? And we get this really long pause and eventually someone will say, well, how would I know? And partly we come to know, you know, trust is defined as the willingness to make yourself vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. At least that's how I define it. Right. So it's got this combination of vulnerability and uncertainty. And, if I want to know if someone trusts me, I ask myself, how can they make themselves vulnerable to me? And do they? You know, if I'm a leader and I ask myself, what are ways that my subordinates can make themselves vulnerable? Well, they could, they could be honest and open with feedback, upward feedback. They could push back against ideas they don't think are going to work. They could bring me the bad news. They could uh, be willing to make mistakes, take risks, innovate, fail. Um, those are all ways that they can be vulnerable. And so if I ask myself, are they doing those things? And the answer is no, then they don't trust you. And so, you know, a lot of times people will, will try to figure out if someone trusts them by asking, do you trust me? That's a terrible way to figure out if someone trusts Like they don't want to answer that question. It's it's awkward. No. And, And the appropriate response is with what? right? Because trust is not a dichotomous variable. It's not I either trust you or I don't. It's I'm willing to trust you with certain things. And the deeper my trust is with you, that means the lower my uncertainty is, the broader the vulnerability is, the more things I'm willing to trust you with.
0: Right. Now that kind of uh, also interplays with what you mentioned earlier with with the jerk.
1: Right. right
0: that in an essence there aren't you trusting the behaviors you observe with the person so it could be a bad trait or a good trait right Um, and your trust isn't thrown just into good traits about people it's also thrown into basically almost that mistrust that yeah in certain situations they're gonna act like this right predictable Yeah. Isn't trust about observing behavior more than anything and predicting that outcome then as well, as you said, that uncertainty.
1: That's definitely part of it. And um, the challenge we face now is that we get fewer and fewer opportunities to observe behavior. Yes. Which is is why trust is in decline. Yeah. Right. Um, And so Observing behavior is one way that we can absolutely come to understand someone else and be able to predict how they're going to behave in the future. Um, let's let's go back to the jerk example. Maybe the jerk is a mechanic, mm-hmm. right? And they're a really good mechanic and they take real pride in their work, but they're an asshole to everybody. <laughs> and And so you know that if your car's in trouble or if you're having problems, you take it to them they're going to fix it. They just can't interact with people in a normal way, but they, they're a genius when it comes to cars. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you trust that person with your car and you know that they're going to be cranky and they're going to be irritable and they're probably going to call you an idiot, but they're going to fix the car. Right. And so within that boundary, you know, you know, they've got a certain amount of integrity. And so they're, they're predictable. Their behavior is consistent. Um, or, you know, you, you gave the example of having a jerk on your team. It's our jerk. You know, that if somebody else gets out of line on the other team, they're going to be there and because they can't help themselves.
0: They're, they're probably going to be
1: there starting it too. (laughs) Yeah. There's a good chance they're starting it. Um, (laughs) But, you know, they're also willing to come to your rescue if you need help.
0: Big time, absolutely.
1: So, so it's, a, it's this deeper understanding of people, and, and it's this acceptance of who they are and where they are. Now, how does this come down? Like, these
0: are some big, big things. What about your inner behavior? Let's go back to why people would sit on the bus and open up to you. Right. What sort of traits or things can people be doing to just build that persona of trust with themselves that basically is a magnet for other people to, to trust and like them?
1: Yeah, I mean, partly I think, you know, if I, because I still am not exactly sure what it is about me, because I've, I still have students come to me and say, wow, you feel strong, but safe. Right? right. Like, I feel like I can be open and vulnerable with you, but, and, and you're not going to take advantage of that. But it, so there's some signal that I'm giving off. Mm-hmm. And it's not all the time, right? Like, I have bad days too. Oh, um, and there are people who don't like me. And that's, that's fine. There's a comfort that I have with myself that allows me to show up in the world where, where people get a sense that I'm genuine. That. Right that I've become less concerned about others' opinions of me that I am with my own values and, and being concerned with being consistent with who I think of myself as, as a human being, as a person. So the um, way I process that by by listening
0: to it is that it started with a comfort you had with yourself and then it was the outside world and how you process, basically negative things thrown at you. yeah,
1: And
0: like from a brain kind of hacking perspective, that's, that's so deep for me is that, yeah, it's how your nervous system is building that self confidence, right from within. And yeah, you're you're demonstrating it and it comes out in your voice, your posture everything that you're doing right now, and you don't observe it because you're natural at it. And, uh, right. People people notice right away when people aren't natural at things. Uh, so what could these people that aren't naturally speaking or they're trying too hard to build trust do?
1: Right. So I think part of it is we interpret the world through stories. And I'm loving this conversation, by the way, Dave. Is- I. Yeah, um, part of it is we, we build these stories because I could tell a profoundly negative story about myself. You know, I'm legally blind. I've got post-concussion syndrome. I, I uh, When I was 2001, I was in a car accident, ended up with post-concussion syndrome. You know, I'm follically challenged. The hair's going. You know, the body could be a little tighter, a lot tighter. Um, so, so there's this negative story I can tell about myself, Right. Right but there's just also this profoundly positive story that I can tell about myself. You know, I, I've spoken at Harvard and, and got rave reviews and I've taught all over the world and I've helped senior executives and, and I have, you know, I've worked with people and seen just profound change. I, I've worked with a couple of folks who, you know, I think some of the more meaningful stuff for me was a, a couple of dads who were struggling and estranged from their kids and within a few months, I had them completely turn that relationship around. And so, you know, there are there are competing stories within me, and I have the right to choose which of those stories I tell. And in part, I've taken that very seriously with my sons, who I have two sons, Thomas and Alexander. They're the center of my world. They mean more to me than anything. And... I have a relentlessly positive story about them, and so part of my job as their dad is to communicate that story to them, to help them reinterpret the world, and hone that positive story. Right. And it doesn't mean that I'm always nice. It doesn't mean that I'm that I that I don't have concerns or, or give feedback, but I start from a positive place. It's that love side of things, and yeah, after. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I future-proof them. I create a level of resilience for them that allows them to go into the world and make mistakes and take risks and try things. You're giving them. Yes. And so they've got this safe harbor, this foundation from which they can build. We can do that for ourselves in some ways, you know, and, and in part, I wouldn't want anyone to go through the childhood that I went through. You know, my father was a, an alcoholic. He struggled uh, with substances. Um, and he was involved in an automotive accident when I was seven years old and, uh, lost his leg, uh, cracked his pelvis, broke his hip, crushed a couple of vertebraes in his back. He was in pain for the rest of his life. Wow. And he self-medicated with alcohol and it led to some very challenging times. And, you know, sometimes a hard road is a good teacher sometimes it's just a hard road, but sometimes it's a good teacher. And, and from that you learn, I can take a lot. Right. 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 And I can make myself vulnerable to other people and have the strength to take whatever comes back. Now you
0: turn it into more of a vulnerability. Um, but a lot of people will hold it inside and that toughness will come off as being closed and, uh, and fending people away, am I kind yeah. of on that side too? So,
1: yeah, and I had that for a while. Oh, okay. you know, you know, as a, as a young man, I uh, I was careful about not letting people close because I didn't want to get hurt again. Um, but I I was able to grow past that, and you know, the experiences taught me that being vulnerable was okay. You know, and I, I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake. And people see me, you know, in vulnerable situations often. Mm-hmm. And the world's actually a really kind place if we let it be. You know, there are so many people who want to be helpful, who, who get a positive burst from helping someone else. And, you know, going through the world and, and being a little bit vulnerable um triggers a positive response a lot of times now there are people who who seek to take advantage um and you know there are people who will mistake my kindness for weakness at times um and so there's there's an edge as well right and so and so it's uh, this a lot of people will kind of uh,
0: say they maybe fall into that category. They find that they're in these situations where they think, "Yeah, I'm being nice, and all of a sudden, I'm attacked or something." Right. Uh, what's going on there that that actually occurs with them?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question too, um, and I'm I'm not exactly sure because some sometimes. It triggers an aggressive response from others. You know, we see this with dogs, right? If you're, if they, if they have an aggressive approach and you run, then they become even more aggressive. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had to set people straight at times um, where, you know, I've had to say, Hey, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Cause I, I can hurt you if I have to. You know, either emotionally or intellectually or physically, if if it comes to that, um, I'm choosing not to. And so there are times when we have to set boundaries with folks to make it clear. And and I've heard this from leaders as well, where they think, "Geez, you know, sometimes when I let people make mistakes and I I try to coach them and help them grow, they assume that I'm incompetent or that I don't know things." And and so. Partly, it's this communication piece that we struggle with, um, you know. And and I experience less of this lately as my confidence grows. Right. Um, you know, as I've become more mature, I'm able to to communicate in a way that doesn't signal to predators that they should pounce. Um. And but still communicates kindness. And sometimes we go too far. And so there's this balancing act of, you know, how vulnerable should I be? There's, there's work by Brene Brown that says just be more vulnerable. Well, there's a reason we don't do that. Right. Right. Because sometimes people will take advantage. But we can take small steps, show small bits of vulnerability to see how people respond. You know, and so sharing a little bit about myself, um, asking for help. Um Admitting I don't know something. Those are all ways that I can make myself just a little bit vulnerable, and then I can see how the other person responds. If they respond in kind mm-hmm. by saying, "Oh, you know what? I I struggle with that too," or I had struggles with that and somebody helped me, or uh, or if they say, you know, something unkind, they've sent me a pretty clear signal. And yeah, you know, there's uh, there's know. old. Start to
0: kind of develop that reaction and that timing with it. This is some of the amazing things you, you teach in your course, correct? Or when you're yeah. consulting, uh, what other things would people expect if they were to, to check out your your website there and uh, or to see as a consultant? Uh, what would you do with Trust Unlimited? To, to yeah. To so hold on. What so. The amazing. A kids.
1: big part of what I do is, is I try to raise awareness about, here's what trust is, you know, it's the willingness to make yourself vulnerable. And when you can't completely predict someone's behavior. Now, here's how it works. You know, here's the model. And mm-hmm. we go through the 10 levers. We all have the ability to build trust. Some are better than others. And so those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. You know, let's say it's the ability lever. I have these kinds of credentials, this sort of background right this much experience those who are better have multiple levers those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one Mm. and so what i do is i systematically walk people through here's the levers you can pull and here's how to pull them you know if they if they bought my book building trust exceptional leadership in an uncertain world there's a few chapters that talk about here's why i understand trust the way that i do here's how i think about it Here's why it matters. Now, here's the model. Here's the 10 levers. Here's how to pull them. That's what they should expect. And in the courses, you know, I've got a master class where it goes through parts of the model and, and gives them role plays to look at and exercises to practice. If they're working with me directly, what they should expect is you're going to pick a trust buddy and you're going to practice these skills. And so I'm going to go through them. I'm going to talk about here's what benevolence is. Uh, You know, it's the belief you've got my best interest at heart. Well, how do we pull that lever? How do I even start? Well, we start with a conversation. And so you and I are having a conversation. I say, well, I heard this guy, Daryl, talking about benevolence. He said it's really important for trust. Yeah. And he said it's, you know, having someone's best interest at heart. But And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that, Dave? Uh, So you're getting the feedback, which is
0: just so valuable with this as well. Otherwise, how can you build this skill?
1: Right. And part of the challenge I was facing before was I'd say to people, you know, have someone's best interest at heart, think about what's best for them. And they would go, okay, that sounds right. It feels like it should be simple, but it seems hard when I actually try it. And so we give them a template for this conversation because when the person responds and says, yeah, of course I have, You you know, best intentions, all that kind of stuff. You go, well, has anybody ever really had your back, really had your best interest at heart? What did they do? What did that look like? Now you're priming them, right? They're starting to think about when someone looked out for them and how that felt and what they did and how it landed. And then you're able to take that conversation, funnel it a little deeper and go, what would it look like if I had your best interest at heart? What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What does good look like for you? You know, what matters to you? And now all of a sudden we're able to be transparent because I can refer back to that. You know, when my oldest son told me he wanted to get a baseball scholarship, I was able to say, okay, so that's what you want. That's your goal. Well, that means you have to work hard. You have to get, you know, have to work hard at improving your skills. You have to have good diet. You have to get along with your coaches. You know, all of these things that parents typically nag their kids about, right? I'm now able to come alongside and say, this is your goal. Here's how you get there. And it lands as benevolence as me being on his side rather than me picking on him or, or browbeating him Mm -hmm. because I'm able to check in every once in a while and go, is that still what you want? Okay. This is how you get there. And you know, when, when my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, dad, I always know you have my best interest at heart. I know you've always got my back. Even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. Hmm. And I thought, I am winning. (laughs) Right? At the dad game. Because once you've got that, you have so much, they give you so much flexibility, so much slack. They have this positive narrative of you.
0: And that can transfer into whatever career or any other relationship. Um, And that just magnifies things. And that's the beauty of what you're providing. So right. where do people go to, to get this coaching, this
1: help and be put through this process? Where would they So go? if they, if they go to trustunlimited.com, there's, there's a, a masterclass there. They can reach out to my email, daryl at trustunlimited.com. They can connect with me on LinkedIn. They can buy the book, which is, you know, available on Amazon or anywhere that you buy books virtually. Uh, it's called Building Trust. Again. What's that? And the title again is? Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World, uh, written by Daryl Stickle. And just I my, my passion is not just that people buy the book, but that they read it and apply it. Yes. Oh, that's we can make the world a better place. And I can tell that's the goal and everything you're
0: working for yeah so for everyone listening in this is such valuable information and you've gained so much from daryl already and that trust no doubt has been built and check him out once again truth unlimited trust unlimited trust unlimited i'm so sorry about that it's all good (laughs) and for everyone else stay tuned to the next episode of the hardy brain the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into iron-clad brain performers thanks again take care